Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by a large cast of characters, including Executive Editor John Fiorillo, Correspondent John Evans, and Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin. So we've got a few stories we wanted to look at this week uh, that kept us busy and, um, and have kind of uh, driven some interesting conversation. Um, first off, we're going to talk about the Peruvian anchovy fishery and the quota announcement. Now, Peruvian anchovy, it's one of the largest, if not the largest, single, single biomass of, of fish in the world. Uh, and it's incredibly important for the fish meal uh, industry, ergo important for the fish feed production industry. Uh, and then, yes, you can guess where I'm going. It's also important for the aquaculture industry, where feed accounts for around 70% of its costs. So, uh, John Evans, you were uh, on top of breaking this news of the Peruvian quota, uh, and then uh, talk to some some folks about the market impact. So, um, tell us uh, tell us what we know and what we can expect from uh, from this volume uh, of of uh, fish meal in the market. Yeah, um, just to start with, Drew, um, as you mentioned, it's uh, the the uh, the anchovy uh, quota announcements are always highly anticipated, and uh, for those who are not aware, um, Peru has two uh, two different uh, fishing main fishing zones. The, the by far the biggest is the one in north central waters, and that has two seasons, uh, which start usually April or May, going into August. And then again, the second season uh, in um, November, and it always spills over into the new year. So we can expect the fishing season to close as, as long as there's not too many juveniles around uh, sometime <coughs> excuse me, in uh, January. So yes, I mean, this time uh, around for the second season, there was a quota of 2 million uh, metric tons compared with 2.78 uh, million metric tons uh, in the north central waters uh, this time last year um you might you might find that surprising that it was uh, 26% lower but quite a few people were expecting it to be lower although uh, it, i mean this was based on a uh, on a biomass of 7 million metric tons uh, a few weeks ago some people were expecting the biomass to be uh, 10 million tons 9 million tons but those sort of expectations ebbed away and um, one of the reasons, main reasons for that is the amount of juveniles in the water uh, or waters, because it's divided, even that uh, region is divided into sub, uh, subdivisions. But um, yeah, a, a juvenile is classed as uh, less than uh, 12 centimetres, and uh, the quota cannot be fixed at more than 30% of the biomass. As you said, this is important um, for fish meal uh, prices. Uh, we're not too sure what the uh, impact's going to be exactly at the moment, although we can say that uh, bids for uh, material, uh, the prime material, uh, went up $50, uh, as bids, as I mentioned, went up $50 um, straight away with the announcement. And um, But it's not just it's not just the, the normal factors uh, such as supply and demand which uh, can affect the price this time around. As we've seen uh, and we've spoke about quite uh, frequently recently, the um, global container shipping crisis is having an impact. And um, uh, 
uh, some shipping companies are reluctant to, to carry fish meal, which is considered a dangerous cargo, not so much because of that, because they can get more lucrative business transporting minerals. Right. So, I mean, that, that's uh, as with everything we're writing about nowadays, the shipping industry and, and, and the crisis, they're obviously having some some pressure on the adding some pressure to the situation. Um, John, talk a little bit about um, so the fluctuations uh, in uh, in the Peruvian biomass and season to season. I mean, it it, it can go uh, pretty dramatically up or down. Uh, the seasons can be. Uh, uh, can have temporary closures. Can you just give a little bit of background about um, some of how that process works? Yeah, I mean, last year, for example, we had two seasons exactly the same, 2.78 million metric tons. As, as we've seen this time around, it's down. And it, as you say, it, it, um, it depends on um, the, the, the percentage of juveniles in the, in the water. You can say, though, uh, you know, a month from now, a juvenile, a juvenile fish, which is 10 and a half centimetres, uh, may have grown to the correct size. So they can carry on uh, fishing it. And it, it may be that, you know, they, 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 they take the bulk of the catches in December and, Jan, and January, uh, uh, possibly. Um, so, yes. I mean, so, so it's, yeah, the, the, the quota itself is not, uh, it's not a lock, correct? I mean, that's, uh, I guess that's uh, part of the, Part of the key point is Peru does actually do a pretty. Um, they're, they're fairly on top of their their closures when they get concerned, um, but but certainly um, a, a quota is not uh, ultimately uh, guaranteeing a catch. No, that's right. And uh, at last January, January twenty twenty, um, suddenly because of the amount of juveniles in the water, they um, can't remember the precise figure off the top of my head, but it was it was a high quota. And they cut it short by um, a large percentage. I think it was fifty percent or something, or maybe even more than that. Um, so yeah, they have they've got uh, a track record of um, you know uh, uh, you know analysts in the market. They they do tend to say that the stock is managed well these days, um, and part of that managing it well is you know cutting shutting down fishing if they have to. Right, and we have uh, of course El Nino and and La Nina playing a role as well in, in these seasonal fluctuations. Yeah, topical issues at the moment with climate change and the COP26 summit. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the La Nina effect can uh, affect the growth of fish and, and how they're dispersed as, uh, as well. So yeah, they're all factors that play into that. It's not a, it's not a straightforward, uh, or it's not, it's not an exact science, um, fishing for anchovy or possibly for if any other sub, um, species, particularly pelagic. So, yes. Well, you know, that's a fantastic segue into our next topic, which is a Bristol Bay salmon in Alaska. It's the most valuable wild salmon run on the face of the planet. And, uh, and it, it turns out it's going to get even more valuable if fishery scientists are correct. Uh, John Fiorillo, why don't you tell us a bit about what uh, the University of Washington is projecting for this coming season in the, in the Bristol Bay sockeye salmon catch, um, and, uh, and what you think that's going to mean with a, a number that big? Yeah, the University of Washington's Fisheries Research Institute uh, released its 2022 
forecast for the bay um and it's one that's uh watched uh with uh in watched intently because it's been done for a very long time and tends to be extremely accurate so what uh this forecast is calling for right now is a run, a total run of seventy over seventy-one million sockeye uh, returning to the bay, um, which would lead to a commercial harvest of roughly fifty-two million sockeye. So that's a lot of fish. Um, the the figure, the run figure at the run estimate is thirty-eight percent higher than the recent ten-year average and sixty percent higher than the 20-year average. So you can deduce from that that there is potentially going to be uh, lots of fish in the market, which is great because salmon consumption in the United States right now is off the charts. Um, represents roughly 40% of all fresh seafood sold at retail and you know that includes farm salmon as well but the the point being that um yeah salmon consumption especially since the pandemic has really exploded so the timing could not be perfect one would think yeah it's uh it's you know the, the alaska department of fishing games uh, uh forecast was not too far off of that and between the two of them it's um as you said, John, pretty likely that they're going to end up around that level. They are remarkably, uh, remarkably accurate. And we'll, we'll talk about fisheries management in a second. Um, but just from a, the, the market perspective, there's been so much more uh, fresh sockeye coming onto the domestic market, so much more effort to bring refresh uh, sockeye into the domestic market. And it's really pressured um, Chilean coho prices uh, in Japan, which compete now directly with with uh, wild uh, sockeye salmon uh, from Bristol Bay. Um, so, just just on the market side, um, tell us a bit, John. I mean, we we've had some some uh, companies much more aggressively pushing their domestic product into the market, but just over the the past couple of years just tell us about how, what that change has meant on the the US market with with more of that product coming into the domestic market well i mean a lot of it is uh, a fall, is fallout from covid and um when people no longer could run to the restaurant to get um seafood options uh they had to learn how to cook it at home and you know I don't know about you, but fewer fish are easier to cook at home than salmon. And I think people discovered that. And, um, you know, there's so much you can do with it. The, t the flavor's relatively mild, uh, which is good for Americans. And, um, yeah, and it's taken off. And there's a lot more promotion of it in retail these days than uh, maybe in the past. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, th these are really good times for selling salmon. We, we had a, a record-breaking season already uh, at the end of uh, at the end of uh, the season when when uh, when regulators tallied it all up. Um, 
this season smashed records. And uh, Rachel, you um, you play point on uh, tracking wild salmon for us. So um, tell us a bit about just just looking back at twenty twenty one. It was uh, it was already we were we were, we have a, a, a really fantastic season behind us. Yeah, twenty twenty one was a record here for Bristol Bay. The the sockeye salmon run was the largest on record uh, at sixty three point two million. So uh, they also harvested uh, fish that were worth three hundred sixty one million dollars over fifty seven million fish. So. Um, 2022, uh, it's going to be interesting to see if it can break those records because yeah, 2021 was a tremendous year. Um, Bristol Bay just keeps seeing these record runs. And, um, I was actually talking with Michael Jackson, uh, the director of, I'm sorry, the president of the, uh, Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. He's the board president. And he was saying the news is exciting, but it's also, you know, it's a little, uh, it has everyone on their toes a little bit just because that is so many fish coming in um, every year. He's kind of saying that in recent years, the Bristol Bay runs are turning into these mega sockeye runs that are kind of part of these super systems in the Bristol Bay River system. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how processors deal with that because I know in, in recent years they've had um, several days in a row during the peak of the season, which is usually in July, where they they're processing millions of fish a day, and they actually have to they've had to put fishermen on limits in in recent years <laughs> just because it's so much fish coming in. Yeah, and it comes in. Uh, it's such a a narrow, narrow, narrow amount of time. Like you said, you can get you know so much fish going through those factories, um, and you know part of this too there's there's uh, an asterisk on all this uh, high volume as well which is um there has been um smaller and smaller sizes of fish um and also there's no doubt and Rachel you've you've written about this as well there's no doubt climate change is playing a role in and i mean there's you you think about climate change as having a, a deleterious effect on on uh, fisheries and in some ways that's true, but then in other ways you are going to see these these big changes in volumes of fish in different places, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the fish have been smaller in recent years, and the runs have just gotten larger. And uh, scientists are still kind of trying to figure out what's going on with that. It certainly seems like it's related to um, some warming water temperatures. Um, but again, we're kind of living through climate change, so... We're still figuring out how that all that's working together, right? So um, you mentioned Michael Jackson, and uh, and uh, actually he he submitted a guest commentary uh, to us this week, um, and and very interesting because oftentimes uh, we focus on the market side of of things. Uh, of course, you know we're we're uh, a business publication, but. When you look at these large runs, they don't just happen magically. There is a lot of work that goes into figuring out this really complicated fisheries behavior uh, of wild salmon, um, especially in Bristol Bay. And uh, and Jackson kind of um, pointed out he he went up there. Uh, Jackson's a, a fisherman as well in Bristol Bay, but. He went up to uh, uh, one of the fisheries camps way up uh, on the uh, on the lake system where the fish go up to spawn, and he um, and he observed firsthand some of the uh, some of the fisheries management practices 
uh, and a lot of the work that gets done to try to figure all of this out. And it is extremely complex. You, you have to think about the amount of fish running up and, and that it's all coming in such a short period of time, as I mentioned. So fisheries managers have to gauge how much of the fish to let go past uh, fishermen upriver, which is called escapement, uh, and when to let that amount, when to open the fishery to let those fish go up, when to close it down. And so they face an intense amount of political pressure uh, as well uh, from fishermen to, um, you know, to open it up more because they're seeing fish. Um, and then on the other hand, they're, they're trying to figure out how to make sure, um, you know, when they should close a fishery. So it's really a remarkable, uh, a remarkable group of people that, that manage those fisheries. And this, um, what I found interesting about what, what um, Jackson wrote about was that you know, the system of management in Alaska and in Bristol Bay in particular, that's been in place. This sort of very um, science-based management has been in place since, you know, almost the early 1900s. The first, um, the University of Washington in particular, uh, they have a research, a fisheries research institute that uh, that does a, a lot of work uh, there, along with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game uh, biologists and researchers. But the, um, the decline in the fisheries runs uh, from the early 1900s, from about 1919 to the mid-1940s, really had people concerned. Um, and it's, it's interesting because we think of kind of modern fisheries management as something that hasn't been around, a long, around that long. You don't think of people actually caring about fisheries management uh, that far back, but of course they did. Um, in particular, there's commercial interests that uh, need those fish to, to process and, um, and, and, and make a living. Um, so the runs declined from 22 million fish to 10 million fish uh, from 1919 to, 19 to, uh, to the 1940s, as I said. And um, fishermen and company and fishing companies were very concerned and called on uh, researchers from the University of Washington to do uh, some work to figure out what was going on and how to better manage the fishery. So the, the Alaska Salmon Program was created, um, and the, the whole goal of it was to, to help rebuild those runs. So, I mean, that is incredible that back at that time, they were setting up research camps to try to understand this complicated anadromous behavior of fish, they of the the sockeye salmon, they go out, they're spawned in freshwater in the rivers, they go out into the ocean and saltwater and uh, and do their thing in the ocean, and then they when they come to uh, uh, to spawn again and and uh, and die, they go up into freshwater. So figuring out that whole process, um, how they have done it over the years, is is absolutely remarkable. Um, and, uh, and, and Jackson really, I think did a good job kind of highlighting the work that gets done by the university, university of Washington. That's led by Ray Hilborn, um, who's a very well known, um, a fishery scientist, um, around the world, not just, uh, in the university of Washington. Um, but I, you know, we, we don't often write about that. We don't often highlight that. 
Uh, and I thought uh, I thought he did a really good uh, uh, good job, kind of tipping the hat to the the research that gets done to keep these runs uh, to keep these runs strong. So yeah, good some some good uh, some good news about resources, and and oftentimes we're we're not writing about um, uh, good news on uh, on the size of fisheries resources, especially um, in Alaska. There's been uh, closures of the the crab uh, fishery. There's been um, problems with the Pacific cod resource in the Gulf of Alaska. So um, this is some really good news. I hope everybody heard those numbers because the decline that you spoke of in the 40s was a run shrinking down to 10 million sockeye. Well, it's a lot of fish, you know, by anybody's standard. But the run projected for next year is 71 million. The gap between that is obvious and 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 large, right? I mean I think I think the guest column uh by uh Jackson was incredible in in the sense that it highlighted the work these guys do, like you mentioned. I, I mean, yes, they're supported by computer models these days and things, but they are still tramp, tramping out into no man's land in Alaska where there are bears and bugs and everything else and doing field work that is critical to feeding those computer models and spitting out these forecasts, which are amazingly accurate. I mean, we are trying to calculate how many salmon that are now halfway to Japan in the middle of the Pacific will be coming back to, oh, let's see, uh, five river systems, the Naknekwijak, the Igigik, the Yugashik, the, the Nushigak, and the Togiak. I, I mean, it's mind-boggling to me, and I'll, I'll stop, but bravo um, to fishery scientists here and around the world. There we go. It's a it's a nice toast that we can give on Friday to to the fisheries researchers around the world. Um, so the unsung heroes. Uh, great. Let's move on to salmon farming and let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in Canada. Um, it's results season, so all the salmon farming companies have put out how they did in the third quarter. Um, no surprise, uh, most did quite well. Um, the demand for farmed salmon is extremely high across the world and it's continuing, uh, continuing to climb. It's not going to, uh, it's not going to decline by, by any sort of, uh, metric that we've seen. Um, so it's, uh, it, it was all in all a good, a good third quarter. However, mixed third quarter for salmon farmers operating in Canada. The largest Norwegian companies are operating there as well as um, Canadian uh, giant Cook uh, Aquaculture. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit about the latest in Canada. There were some challenges in the BC region, but the real action, the, the interesting things, I guess, uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks has been eastern Canada. Tell us about movie. They they have struggled and had several um, several incidents uh, that have been challenging for them, including climate change related things over the past uh, year or so. But um, tell us about their operations in Newfoundland. They they are um, rethinking some of their uh, ambitions there. Yeah, movie uh, recently announced in its third quarter earnings that it's going to hold back on growing in the Newfoundland area. Um, it said recently that a low oxygen incident at its Canada East operations uh, 
negatively impacted its cost and price achievement by $5 million. It lost about uh, uh, 6.5 million US dollars during the quarter from that. Um, so they're just having issues with lower dissolved oxygen levels over there. Um, they're getting in the summer uh, high water temperatures and plankton, and that's really impacting movies Canada East operations. So they are just kind of for now gonna kind of reduce plans to expand in Newfoundland. It reduces the company's overall planning production for Canada by about 6,000 metric tons. So um, it is, it's a pretty big uh, kind of step back for the company. They really, in recent years, have been pretty enthusiastic about growing in Canada, but they've seen a lot of uh, financial setbacks also during that time. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I, I remember just a few years ago when it was, it, it's been clear that British Columbia, for a long, long time, been clear that British Columbia is not going to be the, the place to grow for salmon farming. There's just a lot of opposition from First Nations groups and from uh, from the community. Um, you know, it, it's just been, it's just clear that, uh, and it's gotten more clear uh, of late, and you've written a lot about that. Um, but Eastern Canada has been sort of hailed as um, as the new frontier, and a lot of companies have begun expansion there. Um, Cook's been there a long, long time, but uh, Grieg has been expanding there. Uh, Movie's been expanding there as well, of course. Um, Cermak attempted to expand there, um, and they ran into some headwinds. Um, so so much so that they uh, that they scrapped uh, their plans for a major operation there. Now, um, interesting story that you uh, are tracking right now. Now Cook is facing um, some First Nations criticism, and and they're they're not really used to dealing with that. Yeah, Cook is kind of uh, getting some feedback about wanting to expand one of its um, lease boundaries in Nova Scotia, where it operates um, in the Rattling Beach area of uh, Nova Scotia. It's part of its Kelly Cove Atlantic Salmon Farming Division. They have a application before a newly created Nova Scotia Aquaculture Review Board that um, is would actually, you know, is a substantial um, increase for the company if it gets approved. They want to, they applied for a 69-acre site to hold 20 cages um, that can hold 660,000 salmon. Um, and the original lease boundary there was for four cages and 120,000 salmon. So it's a, it could be, you know, um, a big change for Cook in terms of production. At this point, the company, though, is saying that they're only requesting a boundary change for a farm. They have no plans to increase production at that site. And they are doing so so that all of their equipment is within um, the boundaries they have applied for. Because I guess apparently they have been previously operating some equipment outside of those boundaries. Um, that's kind of a topic of contention for uh, some of the opposition groups, which, as you mentioned before, Drew, um, some of those opposition groups in Nova Scotia, um, a lot of environmental organizations and, and uh, fishermen opposed to uh, the company also were very adamant about Cermak not expanding in the area. Um, and as you mentioned before, Cermak isn't expanding in, in Nova Scotia or in the Atlantic Canada at this point. 
Um, so yeah, pretty much what's going on um, is also the First Nations in uh, that province, the Nicomah, uh submitted some uh, a letter to the Department of uh, Fisheries and Aquaculture in Newfoundland, uh, just, I'm sorry, in Nova Scotia, um, just, you know, explaining that they really feel that Cook is treading on their territorial rights, on their Aboriginal rights uh, with its operation, with wanting to expand its lease. And so far, they haven't been consulted with uh, by uh, the Canadian government because the Canadian government says Cook is just looking to expand its lease, lease boundaries at this point. It's not um, looking to harvest more fish. So it's kind of uh, going to be interesting to see what happens for Cook with that application. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we'll keep on top of that. So folks, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, just a reminder, IntraFish.com is our home, and that's where you can find us 24-7 writing about the seafood industry and all of the uh, the flood of news that comes across the uh, the transom, so to speak, in a given week, and there is a lot of it. Um, so you can sign up for newsletters there if you want us to be right there in your inbox, and subscribers, of course, can sign up for uh, new alerts, which are fantastic. You can... Uh, really customize the, the news that, that you want to get um, uh, about the topics that are important to you. Uh, in addition, just a heads up, in about a month, December 14th, we will have our Sustainable Seafood uh, Digital Event. This is going to be a really exciting one. We're going to dive into uh, a load of different topics, including sustainable financing. We're going to be speaking with some of the uh, experts in the financial community, uh, investors, uh, folks like DNB, Aquaspark, uh, Fared, uh, Biomar, we're going to have a, a, a fantastic lineup of folks to, to, to talk about these issues. You don't want to miss it. So you can go to intrafishevents.com. Registration is open. Registration is also free. Uh, so we'd love to have you join us uh, at, at that event. All right, folks, uh, have a great weekend and we will speak to you next week.